Welcome to In Between the Record. This is just two guys having fun, discussing obscure and non-mainstream conspiracies and mysteries. We invite you to sit back, relax, and listen to our nonsense. I'm your host, John, and with me as always is a man who says he was a war baby. His parents looked at him and started fighting. I give you Hollis. Yeah. Hollis, how you doing, man? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, well, funny thing is, yeah, my parents divorced 17 days after my first birthday. So hey, you know, here I come, and then they couldn't, they couldn't like each other. Um, we're great. Uh, really glad that the, uh, the weather's changing up here in North Carolina. It's uh, March 21st, 2021, and I'm just really happy that the invasive exotics are starting to put their leaves out. Everybody around me is coughing and hacking and sneezing from their seasonal allergies. I, uh, I it's been a long winter here in Charlotte, very long, at least to me. And um, I was sitting out in the forest with the dog, looking at these little beautiful flowers, and it's almost like an African violet. It's like, how can an African violet get out in the middle of the woods? And uh, I saw my first butterfly. It was a species I'd never seen before. So, oh. Never seen you, buddy. Um, so it was a pretty epic day. Um, buddy fly. Say what? I said buddy fly. Like, yeah, buddy fly. Um, beautiful blue, small. Um, almost didn't recognize it. Then uh, my dog chased a deer. Um, deer jumped over Gar Creek, which was amazing to me because it's about 25 feet long. Um, well, about 20 feet. And uh, yeah. Good day, good weekend. How are you? What'd you do? Loki jumped over no, no. the deer. The deer did. Oh, oh, okay. There's a probably a five year buck. Like a five year buck. Uh, a huge, one of the biggest deer I've ever seen in this part of North Carolina. He just left basically across the entire lake. Really big. Wow, wow. 18 more days. And I'll be all up inside you, North Cackalack. Hopefully we can do a podcast in the flesh. That would be terrific. Won't have to deal with all the uh, audio technical difficulties that come along with recording from hundreds of miles apart. But hey, it comes with the territory. My weekend was pretty good. Pretty good weekend. I took my daughter and my mother to Volcano Bay. Universal Studios Volcano Bay in Orlando, here in Florida. And although it was about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, the water is warm to a nice, comfortable, I'd say about 75 degrees. So it was uh, tolerable, and we had a lot of fun. I have high blood pressure. I've, I've always had high blood pressure. Uh, I, I'm not a gargantuan person. It just runs in my family. And uh, one of the biggest warnings was if you have high blood pressure, don't get on any of these slides. You know, my daughter was, uh, she's a very cautious person like her mother. And she's the type of type of person that uh, prefers water over Coca-Cola or juice. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's a surprise. She's my kid, but she is. and. Uh, she was so concerned over my blood pressure, but I did it. I mean, we did the the the, the big racer 
tube slides and we did the loop-de-loops and it was it was fun a lot of fun we went to ripley's believe it or not in orlando which i think is just a cash grab gimmick to be honest with you I, i'd never been before and it it they really just rush you through and it's not really all the exhibits are just replicas of original exhibits which weren't even real to begin with like the uh shrunken heads you know and the Fiji mermaid it is like this paper mache little skeletal fish hybrid human thing. And do they have a room uh, with matches? The new the room made of matches. Do they, do they, they they had a room with models of ships and other interesting little oddities that people had created with with matches. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had the spinning room. They had the room where everything was. Your perception was skewed because the way that the room was built it was like a room with a pool table and like paintings on the wall and uh furniture but the furniture was built in such a way that it went against different slopes so if you put like a ball on a table the ball would roll what appeared to have been upwards but it wasn't upwards it was actually it it, it really messed with your mind so that was kind of cool and um, there were that big spinning tunnel where you had neon lights that were spinning around you. So it really messed, it gave you like vertigo where you were disoriented trying to walk through the tunnel, like you'd see in a uh, fun house type of thing. Yeah, it was kind of cool. But my, my favorite was the Titanic exhibit. Um, there's a lot of controversy with Titanic Incorporated and their. Um, their voyages to the bottom of the North Atlantic to recover artifacts. And there's there's amazing arguments on both sides. You know, some argue that we need to preserve the memory of what happened for generations to come so they can learn about the tragedy and they can learn about the families and the stories behind the events that occurred. And then there are others that say it's a memorial, it's a it's a tomb that holds what fifteen hundred people went down with that ship? So I got, a, I got a question: Have they have they found any skeletal remains? No, no, I, I don't think they no. Have. I don't think all, I don't all think skeletal. In the ship, my no, the only thing that remains now would be leather. There, there's a lot of boots and shoes that are right next to each other on the ocean floor, yeah. and you know that. You you know that there was a body there at one point, but you know microorganisms would have eaten away at anything that was organic like that. But surprisingly, a lot of the teak and a lot of the wood, other woods, uh, strong woods, remains. So and surprisingly enough, uh, a lot of the suitcases were made out of leather, which takes a lot longer to disintegrate or get eaten by microorganisms uh, because of the way it was tanned that preserved paper artifacts. So there's thousands of paper artifacts that were recovered from the ship that are on display in this museum. And it's just so fascinating. They bring you into the school to scale replica of the grand staircase. My daughter and I took a picture in there and, uh, 
they they bring you to hallways that are replicas of the hallways of the Titanic, and they show you. Um, they should. They you walk out onto the deck, and they have a replica of the deck, and it's 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 cold, and it's like it was the night before, like the night of the sinking, and uh, just just a really cool cool museum. So I enjoyed that thoroughly. So that was my weekend, and it was nice. And it's nice to get away every once in a while. I feel you know we work so hard, and uh, to be able to do something like that for my daughter and my mother. Uh, it was nice. I enjoyed that. So now I'm back, and I'm also just getting over a pretty rough cold. Not COVID, but a cold. And uh, we're gonna come. We're gonna conclude this evening our topic on biochemical warfare. Uh, we did a little episode in between. Um, that you should check that out. It was about the uh, the great car debacle. But uh, tonight. Hollis has the reins, and uh, we're going to conclude our story on this this horrific, horrific topic that I think people should know about, and I, I know you agree. And tell me, Hollis, and tell the audience where we left off. We were talking about biochemical warfare in the United States. And what led up to that? What what how what, what what went on with that? So we're gonna take a step back from it for a second because it really needs to be there. Really needs to be like a little bit of uh, of backpedaling. Um, so if you look at what happened with you know the the horrific things that the Japanese did and the horrific things that the Germans did, and some would say we did as well. You you get they get to a natural stopping. And if you go back to the very part of the first episode in the series, I talked about what exactly is a virus or a pathogen. And, you know, first thing you got to worry about, and I think I said this one exactly, was you have to think about a vector of how do you go ahead and give somebody a disease? How does the disease get to that new victim? Um, so if you look at... A, a timeline of what we went ahead and started doing, or this is all going to start post-1946. Um, you really got to start thinking about, okay, why are they doing what they're doing? And then we're going to end in the horror show that is today's biowarfare that's going on. Um, a little bit of a, an aside before, and this needs to be touched on um, before we get into, you know, pathogens. <laughs> And the big one is, if you think back to 1935, uh, 1920s, um, there were a few things that were were consistent and constant for people who were in the Midwest. Uh, one was pellagra. That's a vitamin deficiency, I believe, B3. And it causes major, major problems with people. Um, and so what, what they did in the start of 1935 um, after decades of people dying of, of vitamin deficiencies, they started fortifying foods. Now, if you all go into your into your uh, cupboard, you're going to see salt. A lot of you are going to have Mediterranean salt like I do. But if you go in and you look at Morton, the Morton salt, the, the girl that has the salt raining on her head with the yellow umbrella, you're going to see iodized salt. 
you know, why did we have salt that we put iodine in it? That just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Well, iodine is an essential nutrient. It's an essential, not a vitamin, but it's an essential element. And it's the good halogen. There's other halogens that are bad halogens. We'll get to them in a second. But in order to go ahead and stop things like goiter, stop things like mild dental retardation, which is a result of children having low amounts of iodine through their upbringing, through their, through their younger years. Um, all these things are from iodine deficiencies. So in order to go ahead and have people be healthier, we've started putting in fortified nutrients in foods, vitamin B, vitamin you know, C, um, iodine, other nutrients. Now, if you were to take those out, or replace them with something else, you could damage a populace. So what's another halogen that we are constantly affected by right now? Fluoride. Halogen lights. Right. Yeah. Fluoride. Oh, fluoride. Blue halogen. Yeah. Blue. You know, the, the, the blue halogen? Fluoride. Um, and so fluoride is, is something that we started putting into our bodies. Um, you know, we started adding to our drinking. Now, what does fluoride do? Fluoride will take the place of the iodine inside your, uh, uh, what's the thing that regulates, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it, thyroid. Well, fluoride is, is good for gingivitis, isn't it? It's good for your teeth. <laughs> it's good It's good on your teeth. But <laughs> and also it calcifies causes, your pineal gland. <laughs> yeah, and it also causes fluoridosis. So though your teeth won't have cavities, you get these little white marks that look like they're raised off of your teeth. And they're not raised, they're just they're fluoride deposits inside your teeth. Um, it's, it's really bad. Um, but that's for people who have a higher concentration of fluoride in their diet. Um, and so that sort of warfare can happen as well, um, where you can, if you can get a, a bacterium or you can set up a situation where a country has a lack of a certain mineral or lack of a certain nutrient. Um, you can do massive damage on a massive scale. Uh, I say this as somebody who in college got scurvy. Um, I know that sounds insane, and it is, but it's true. Uh, I had a diet that had zero vitamin C in it. Um, I cooked all my own meals for the first four months of me being in college. And I, I just started feeling terrible. My teeth started feeling loose, and it was weird. I was having bad dreams. And was, I went to the doctor, and he looked at me, and the guy was 85 years old. He's far dead, I'm sure now. Well, maybe not. The man was going to live forever. And uh, he's like, what's your diet like? So I told him what I was eating, which is basically vegetables and chicken and, and water. He's like, add vitamin C. You need nothing. And within a week, I was completely fine. And that started wow. me. That started me drinking every morning when I wake up a glass of orange juice to keep my vitamin C levels up. I'm that paranoid about it. Publix orange juice in the half gallon. Gotta love it. Um, so that's, that's, that needs to be said that you can, as a, as a country, wage war on another country by forcing them to have things that will replace things that they need or depriving them of things that they need. Um, a very good example is if you give somebody white rice in Africa, what have you done? You have given them calories. You have not fixed any of their dietary deficiencies. Think about that. Um, sure. But, and 
speaking of which, uh, our own government did research on what would go ahead, um, what would happen if we added fluoride to our diet. And the thing's called Program F. Uh, and it was a study by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission to see what fluoride would do to you. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you, if you want to be like, why are we drinking this in our water? Go ahead and read up about Program F. It's a, a key chemical component in atomic bomb production. Yes, it is. Um, that's the reason why they were doing it, because they, they wanted to know what, what could possibly be caused as a problem to, to, uh, you know, to the people who are making their bombs. And also, what are they going to do with Ford once they started to stop meeting it? So, going back to what we started doing, I'm just going to give you a little rundown of, of what started happening. Now, we're looking at vectors. Remember the Japanese were trying to do mosquitoes, fleas, and they were literally staking people who had lost their arms and legs to stakes and exploding their bombs because they're trying to see how good their vectors were. So we were behind them. So you would stand a reason that we are then going to spend the next while trying to get our vectors up. Once we learn how to vector in and affect as many people as possible and get really good at it, what's the point of further testing? There isn't any. It's like thermobaric bombs. What's the point of doing better thermobaric bombs? They're huge, they're massive, they're like mini nukes. You know, bingo, bango, you don't need to. All right. So what's the one thing that, you know, in 1945, we had a lot of, we had a lot of casualties. Um, and so in 1946, the U.S. Congress cleared the way for VA hospital patients to become uh, guinea pigs for medical experiments. Yeah. Then in 1947, Gil Truman, he withdrew us from 1928 Geneva Protocol, uh, and it was not ratified until 1974. Um, now in 2002, George Bush after 9-11 pulled that back. So we were only quote unquote, not making germ weapons between 74 and 2002. 2002. But right. no, we, we were because there's, there's proof that, um, that Reagan did that. We were just doing it illegally and, and against our own laws. So if you go on, on further, you can start, you're also starting to look at, well, you know, we need vectors and we need to see what's going to happen with people who are going to get sick through nuclear radiation. So good old Colonel E.E. E. Kirkpatrick, he, there's a secret document called number 0707501. So and it basically <laughs> states that we're going to go ahead and write that down, folks. Zero seven zero seven five zero zero one. Yeah, we're gonna give radioactive substances to to humans. Um, Intervenous. Yeah, let's inject. Let's inject you with a little bit of you know cancer. Um, now, what could the what did we get from this? Well, one of the things in nuclear fallout, um, and you can come up with a brand when I tell you this, John, because you can't. It's, it's in my car currently. One of the things with, with nuclear fallout is it negatively affects your thyroid and gives you thyroid cancer. Um, if you don't get killed by the flash and the burns and, and what have you, or the radiation and the sickness. 
um, your thyroid's usually the first thing to go. If you don't have a thyroid, you're dead in the ground. Um, so what you do after a nuclear explosion is you, you drink or eat iodine, um, large amounts of iodine, and that keeps the stuff from entering the other halogens that keeps the, the nasty radioactive elements from entering your thyroid and then causing you to have thyroid cancer. Well, how do we know this? We knew this because of this guy. We knew this because we started doing experiments on VA patients. Now, up until Trump came along, VA was considered a death trap, right? Could you get a good doctor in the VA? Well, oh, it, it astronomically difficult to, to, to get any sort of assistance. And, and that was a long-standing issue. And me working in the drug and alcohol and mental health rehabilitation field, see it firsthand. Um, it's, it's, it's atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. You know, I, I broke my ankle and hip in Fort Benning, Georgia, Army Hula. And they were going to fuse my ankle three degrees down fused like you know me john i like running with my dog i can mm -hmm. run because i went outside the army um you know, uh you should hear you should, next time you see uh paul senior have him talk to you about some of the things he saw while he was in tennessee uh, you know people going in there for small ailments and walking out with you know testicular cancer in two weeks their balls blowing up i mean it's bad um but see we never stopped testing on VA patients, which is horrific, but it's, it's unfortunately the truth. Um, then, of course, you have the you know, CIE doing your FSD experiments. That's fine. I mean, we all know about that stuff. And it's, it's been in the lexicon for a long, long time. So now we are starting to get into, we're starting to get the effects, but the U.S. Army is really starting to think, how are we going to get these vectors going? So we started releasing biological agents on our own city. Sticking with vectors for today. Um, U.S. Army is starting to get, and on the technical side, they're starting to get the ability to go ahead and have these weapons be deployable um, without destruction of thing, pathogen, or chemical inside of them. So now we got to figure out well, once once these things you know, get released out to the air. What are they going to do? And so in 1949, we started a series of experiments where the U.S. Army released biological agents across the United States. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read you a list of cities, and, or a list of cities. Um, this doesn't touch all of them. We did small towns, big towns, etc. And what this allowed them to do is doctors would report back how many cases of flu they had, how many cases of that they had, etc. So then when they release something new, they could see what the difference was. So they could tell how effective something was. Um, it's not perfect, but it works pretty good. Now they have it down to where it is. And so, size back that too. So it started off 1949 through the 1960s, still going on today. Let's be honest, there isn't any of it. Um, in fact, there's cases that happened in the 1980s. Um, First big one on the list, San Francisco. San Francisco, they they gassed San Francisco. They put bacteria in San Francisco. What is San Francisco? Has coastal town, westerly wind, metropolitan area, especially the 1960s. 
like fifties. Boom. Easy, easy thought on that one. New York, New York City, um, large metropolis with subways, large tall buildings on the coast-ish, still reliable winds. Washington, D.C., not a very large city, um, especially back then, but good enough. And they also, since the Senate and the House run Washington, D.C., they could really crack down and really find out what was what. Panama City, that's a low-hanging fruit because of the airbase industry. Key West, island, highly packed with people. See why that would be useful. Minneapolis, Minnesota, Back then in the 1950s, it wasn't a very big town, but low-level country, decent, like, little big-town America back then. Awesome. Then you got places like Pennsylvania, um, turnpikes. Then you have places, you know, like turnpikes and, and, and roads elsewhere. Well, what would they do? Well, it's different countries have different celebrations. We have Memorial Day. We have July 4th. Everybody, you know, most people in the Western world have Christmas. Um, the the Chinese, their country pretty much shuts down for Chinese New Year. Um, just recently turned back on. Um, so if you are beside the road and you're releasing a pathogen, they need to know how well does it get through the air conditioner. You know, it can infect people with you know, open windows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, none of these diseases they were releasing were... There were some were lethal, but they weren't, they didn't have that high virulence, the high lethality that smallpox would have. Or if they gassed everybody on, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike with anthrax, they didn't do that, guys. But they did do it so they could see through the background of what what was going to, you know, what was working and what didn't work, how much was working and, and just how good certain things were. Um, the next year, Department of Defense also wanted to go ahead and figure out what their nukes could do. So they started their open-air nuclear weapons detonations in deserted areas and also um, out west. Now, if you want to see some really cool videos, uh, Trinity and Beyond, that's a really good, awesome one. It's from 1980s. It's pretty good, though. Um, check out some of those old explosions. They're, actually, they're absolutely gorgeous, but nightmares are the same. Um, and we all know back in 1924, we had 200 people with syphilis, and they all died in Tuskegee experiments. Yeah, mm -hmm. but in 1951, now at this point, we're trying to figure out race-based specific weapons for different races. So if I can drop something in China and kill every single person who's Mandarin in China, that rocks, right? It won't come back and affect me. So in 1951, they started testing African-Americans for a race-based fungal weapon in Virginia to see if you can kill all the black people in Virginia and have it only affect them. Then they can mess with the virulence on it and then make it completely um, Now they also did chemical testing throughout the 50s as well, but it's not a really, really huge, huge thing. Going back to um, U.S. Army, Navy, and the CIA, so everybody's getting involved by, 19, by the 1950s. They started releasing, exposing tens of thousands of people to Sarata Marchinsons and to Silvoglogigi. I think I, I butchered that. But yeah, 
I wouldn't be able to say that three times fast. Yeah, I can't. I can't say it one. Um, and that did kill people. And and it's and those things are not diseases that are readily available. Um, they're not readily like. It's, it's not like you're going to get one of those diseases on a Tuesday walking down the street. And so people picked up on it. That's when everybody started being like, okay, what the heck is going on here? Um, now, at this time, also things started to get released. Um, and accidentally. And that started the real big crackdown in the 1950s. Really getting to level, what we know now today is level two, level three, and then later on level four. So, so it didn't stop there. The U.S. government knew with some justice that they needed a vector that could just sit in the background and be a low, slow burner. Now, John, you may remember this as a kid. There's a lot of people who died of West Nile virus in Florida. Do you remember that? Mm. <clears throat> Heard of it, but no, I, no personal recollection. So, uh, how about Zika? The Zika virus, yeah. yeah. yeah that was uh, during Obama's term. Yes. Now, looking back on it, it's actually a, a MMR shot, I believe. That was causing the microcephaly. Uh, Measles, mumps, and rubella. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it was, it was a tainted shot in Brazil that was causing it. And once they stopped giving everybody the tainted shot, nobody got Zika anymore. No more microcephaly. Um, but the disease, the, the mosquitoes that they started going ahead and, and transporting different areas, Savannah, Georgia, Avon Park, Florida, hmm. were the Aedes aegypti, the yellow fever mosquito, and Aedes uh, albopictus, the Asian tiger mosquito. Now, for us people who live in the South, Texas, Louisiana, etc., these guys are very, very aggressive. They, they hit you multiple times and they'll fill up on you. Now, if you look at the mosquito and you see little white little dots on them or white little stripes on them, that's these two guys. Now, the U.S. Army intentionally released them to the tunes of tens of thousands of mosquitoes in Savannah, Georgia. They did the same thing in Avon Park. They did the same thing in Tampa. So a lot of the um, diseases that people have gotten in Florida, from these mosquitoes, are the direct result of the U.S. government going ahead and, and forcing that upon us. Now, they really, really had to, you know, figure out they needed something to see just how good these mosquitoes were. So they went ahead and infected them with yellow fever, <laughs> and sent tens of thousands of yellow fever mosquitoes into the local populace, which caused yellow fever outbreaks. Surprise, surprise, you have a new mosquito that is put into an area that just hasn't been infected before, and a disease that is not prevalent, and a disease that will show its face, and you can definitely tell when somebody has yellow fever. Um, boom. Vector, how good the vector works. Awesome recording on how many people it affected, as per the mosquitoes in two places in Florida, which are directly corollary to other places in, in the United States and across Southeast Asia, Africa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, you know, as someone who's gotten malaria myself, that's just frightening. 
So I don't even want to know what that's like. So, so you know, oh yeah, you're probably thinking at this point that the U.S. government is just saying one thing on one side and, and then doing another. Nope, sorry. That same year, 1956, Army Field Manual, Manual 27-10, The Law of Land and Warfare, it states, I own it by the way, the biochemical warfare isn't banned. It's not banned. In fact, we're doing it. Um, I mean, come on. Now that's the Army Field Manual 27-10. The Law of Land Warfare. I have, I have. Anytime I see him at uh, gun shows, I just pick him up if I don't have him, collect them. There's a few that you don't want to tell people that you have, but I have a lot of them for reasons. Interesting um, little artifacts. Antiques. Do you know I also have uh, 10 years of Soldier of Fortune magazine? Interesting. Yeah, I bought a, I bought a trunk in college, and I thought the trunk was really heavy when I got it. It didn't have a key. So the person's giving it away uh, for like 10 bucks. And so I bought it and I eventually just popped the lock. And I, I have 10 years, 1981 to 1991 of Soldier of Fortune magazines. They interview Osama bin Laden three times. Wow. True story. Um, totally wrecked my view of, of uh, the Afghanistan war when I went back and reread those in 2004. Um, so... We got vector testing, we got testing, you know, and all of that. So now it's time to move on to, it's also our technology is getting better. So by 1961, it's, you know, people are starting to figure out that, you know, hey, you know, the arm is giving us yellow fever. So the one thing that they could go ahead and do is test on their own uh, soldiers, which is really who you're wanting to affect anyway. So good old Kennedy. Uh, increased the chemical spending from 75 million to 330 million in today's dollars, by the way. Uh, and, and authorized Project 112. Um, and what this did was it tested the biological. You didn't, you didn't mention that the uh, Army Assistant Chief of Staff of Intelligence authorized LSD field testing in Europe and in the Far East. Correct. Just before they did this. Uh, it, it just it baffles me that this is what transpired and, and and kennedy of all people i would assume would have vetoed a program like this but no no and that's what's crazy about kennedy you, you'd think kennedy would be like no oh heck no no he, he more than tripled the spending um and this was for chemical and biological weapons tested on u.s servicemen um now the big one was shad which was a navy program um, where they wanted to see just how good their ships were against, you know, nerve gases, sarin, salmon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we also did biological experiments because, hey, why not, right? Um, and then, so we're not done with the United States yet. So remember when I said, you know, New York, you know, New York's a big metropolitan city. Well, New York also has something that Moscow has, Leningrad has, Stalingrad has, Berlin has, Bonn has, Paris, you name it. The big cities have subways. And so what they would do is they'd fill light bulbs with pathogens. And then they would stand at the very end of when the train was coming and they would throw the light bulbs into the oncoming train and the train would 
pull all those pathogens across everybody who was in the submarine station at one time. And so if you put a, a pathogen that can be recorded that you know what happened, you can see how one light bulb can affect an entire city, then why not try four, five, ten, fifty? That's what they did in the well, not 50, but that's what they did in 1966. In, in New York. Yeah, New York City. So, I mean... Unbelievable. Yeah, and, and so at this point, we are so nasty uh, in regards to this that two years later, the Pentagon considered using nerve gases um, against our own people um, and chemical gases against their own people. And we do use chemical agents against our own people now. But I don't really think that tear gas is a chemical agent in the way that we're talking about it. When you start going to nerve agents, you're talking viral warfare. Yeah, um, we're thinking about the college where the, 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 the security guard was spraying the protesters with the pepper spray. That's, you know, that's, a, form, that's a form of chemical warfare, is it not? It is, but, it's, but I don't consider it bio warfare. No, this is way above the that sort of thing. They were nerve. They're going to nerve gas hippies. <laughs> Which is play. funny because if you listen to one of our last episodes, the Laurel Canyon experiment, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the hippies were created by our own government. So, kind of interesting that they did that. Which brings the question: Is one hand talking to the other hand? In my opinion, at this point, is no. Um, it wasn't until recently that I think that the hands started talking to each other in the U.S. government, but that's my opinion. I could be wrong. Um, now, they still needed to figure out the vectors. And so the big one now was you need something that will only go ahead and kill what you want it to and then not stick around. So you don't want to have small packs blowing back and hitting your you know, population, killing one-third of your population. So best way to do that is to find an agent that will kill a certain race or a certain type of person or even one person, i.e. a cancer virus, um, or you get a nerve agent. Now, I consider nerve agents biowarfare because it kills your dinner and hammer. So in 1969, they had a, a nerve agent out in Utah, and it killed thousands of sheep. Thank God the shepherds weren't there. But it killed thousands and thousands of sheep. Now, at this point, Nixon is getting to the point where, and, and all these things that have happened in the past, and they've all come out. Well, most of them come out. And so Nixon um, does two national security memoranda. Um, the first one is in 1969, November. The second was in February 1970. So they're back to back. In 69, and I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to back it up and speed it forward on both of these. 69, ended the production and offensive use of lethal biological and chemical weapons, okay? And then relegated it to research for defensive purposes. So we can still use it for defensive purposes. But there's more to that one, we'll get that in a second. The second one in 1970, destroyed the, the stockpiles of the toxins and small stuff of um, other things that were like the, the Things that we've been working on for biowarfare. However, small quantities were going to be maintained to develop vaccines, drugs, etc. 
Now, why was it safe for us to destroy all of our stuff in 1969 and 1970? It's because we had learned how to grow that stuff exponentially. So if we ever needed to go ahead and get, you know, several tons of anthrax, we could get it in just a week or two because we know how to grow it very quickly. We know how to, to, to get it to where we can really get it to back to those things. Now, we didn't destroy the weapons. We didn't destroy a lot of delivery devices. We just destroyed the stuff that goes in those devices. So it stands to reason we had at that point the ability to mass produce nasty, nasty. Um, now, through this time, through the 60s, in what were we using in, in Vietnam? Biowarfare. We were using Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. Right? Agent Orange killed my uncle. That's what they say. I agree. But they killed my uncle. Um, now, this stuff was basically sprayed on the plants and killed the plants. Uh, modern day version of it, though they are not. They are alike, but they are similar um, roundup phosphate roundup yeah yeah um, and that stuff that's just brutal um so in 1969 the general assembly of the u.n says no more plant killers or tear gases in warfare so we went ahead we're one of three votes um and we still we still went ahead and kept doing it we vote against it, but potato, potato. And so we kept using the plant killers and tear gases in warfare. Um, and so and and so, sorry, I had to get my notes back on back on that. So so it released. So basically, what we decided to go ahead and do is keep that system going. Now, to say that we didn't just do that and put it away and, and stop it permanently is an absolute lie. Um, in March 2008, Crystal City, Virginia, we released a, you know, a, a perfluorocarbon um, and sulfur hexafluoride um, in that town. Um, even though it could harm or harm asthma and, and other respiratory, people with respiratory problems. Like it's Florida again. But why would we do that? We, were, we never stopped, guys. For those 28 years in the middle, we just never stopped. Um, and, you know, you got 1969. Basically, there, you know, Dr. Robert McEnhan, he requested 10 million bucks. That's that money, not this money. Um, for a biological agent with no natural immunity, which basically means to kill all. A complete wipe off the face of the earth, um, biologically. Um, now, were we using these against other countries? The answer is yeah, probably. Um, the answer is yeah, probably. Uh, Cuba has said that we were using it all the way since uh, Fidel Castro has been in power and died, etc. Still says we're using it today. Um, Nineteen seventy-one, we continued with Asian War. Now, in Castro, could say it with some justice. Uh, in Cuba, which is a fairly closed-off country, they had a dengue fever. 
type 2 dengue fever outbreak. And there's a few attacks on us of basically, you know, bird flu on our poultry production. Um, and, you know, in 1981, during the dengue 2 outbreak, 300,000 people got it. And they had 158 fatalities. Well, why would we do that to Cuba? One, well, we hate Cuba. Um, and two, we hated Cuba, I should say. And, and two, there's not a lot of traffic in and out of Cuba. And so that's a safe place to go ahead and to test it on a high third, low second, um, second rate, not second rate, but second world country. Back before 1989, they ran Iraq war. What was Saddam using the ran Iraq war? Biological and chemical agents against their own people supplied to them by the United States and Ronald Reagan. Boom. What happened in, in 1984? Reagan ordered M55 rockets to be able to contain nerve gas. Boom. 1985, 86, US starts doing open air biological testing again. Openly says they're doing it again. Then, two years later, Congress wants to resume chemical production. Boom. Follow the line. 1990, G. Dub, George Herbert Walker Bush, G. son, sorry. Um, he says they'll stop it in 10 years. The 10 years is 1999. More on that in a minute. Um, so then, following the Gulf War, you have what's likely to have been uh, a biological experiment was the anthrax vaccine. Um, uh, going into, well, that's 2003, sorry. But you have Gulf War Syndrome. Um, I'm not going to put a whole lot of, put a whole lot of, you know, effort in the Gulf War Syndrome. because there's, there's podcasts that need to be said about it, and that's not one for the day. Look it up. 30% um, of the people who are, who are non-combat, you know, currently have, currently have serious problems. Uh, <laughs> It's getting worse. That generation is going to, unfortunately, turn pessimists. Um, so, moving on, everything continues all the way until uh, 1997. So we we said we said we're going to go ahead and ratify the Chemical Weapons Convention, banning the production, stockpiling, and use of biological and chemical warfare weapons. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Two years early, we are slowing everything down again. Good job, Clinton. What happened on September 11th, 2001? Big bada boom. Big bada boom. Three buildings came down. Two hit by planes and the other one not so much. Right. Um, Building seven. Whole yeah. other episode. Oh, yeah. That's a tired topic. Yeah. Most people should know. 9-11 Anyways, so, uh, so, <laughs> so then right after, right after September 11th, you know, our good friend G-Dub, what, 12 years after his father said no more biological weapons, three years after it was supposed to stop, or two years after it was supposed to stop, he then rejects the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention and says, nope, we're not going to pay attention to it anymore. Then he spent $50 billion 
and they billion in eight years and made everything secret. No reporting, no nothing. Open wide. Do what the hell you want. Fifty billion dollars. That's right. like twelve billion a year almost, man. Yeah, and that was ushered in by the National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah. And it was somewhere in there, somewhere in that gigantic, what was that? How, how many pages? It's, it's like 2,000. Like yeah. 2,000. <laughs> yeah, like the 2, that was written on the spot. 1,000 pages. Yeah. It, and so, boom, everything goes secret. Everything goes dark. Okay. Are they still doing all of the stuff that they had been doing before? Yes. It's too close for them to go ahead and make it all known because you know some of the people would want to sue the U.S. government for you know being affected by Manair, 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 Manair. Um, so things got so wacky and so out of hand because what was happening in this period of time is that they were spending so much money that the the army. The army doctors, the, the army scientists, the navy scientists, the air force scientists couldn't keep up with the need, and so they started farming this stuff out to other groups. So, what they did in 2014 is there was a big series of outbreaks—not outbreaks, but big series of, of problems. This is under Obama, and these problems, you know, they. Uh, I think it was 70 people got exposed to anthrax. They had live virus, smallpox, the, the good, fun, deadly stuff that was sitting and not secure. I mean, we're talking massive, massive problems. So what are you going to go ahead and do if you're the U.S. government, if you're having massive problems under Obama? Obama's like, well, I don't know about this, so I'm going to go ahead and shut it down. So he shut it down, right? October 2014, he put a federal moratorium gain-of-function research. Gain-of-function research is what happened. It's what you do when you want to get a disease that's nastier and nastier and nastier. You mix it with several other diseases, so it has high virulence, it has a huge amount of vectors, and then you can figure out how nasty you want it to be by playing with everything else in the genetics. Do we have that ability? Ladies and gentlemen, we've had that ability since the so, all that information, all that gain-of-function stuff got stopped in the United States. We weren't going to stop it. So, what did we do? Well, there's a guy named Anthony Fauci. You know who he is? I don't. Well, we all know who he is now because he's been, she's been catapulted into the forefront of the American psyche. He's the director of the CDC. He was the director of the CDC. Uh... He's also now, the first president of Moderna, by the way. Little, little side out there. Yeah, very interesting guy. Um, knows his stuff. Whether you, whether you like him or believe him or agree with what he says, it just depends on where you are. You know, I'm going to listen to the man. Um, he's, he's at where he's at. He's been there for 40 years for a reason. Um, but he said, "Well, if we can't do gain of function here in the United States anymore, we have to send it somewhere else." So he got gain of function research sent to China's Wuhan lab. Oh, Wuhan, huh? Yep. And so if you were giving gain of function research to a lab somewhere, 
you know what comes with that gain of function research? All the previous data. Right. Oh. So now China, so now China had access to everything that has has been conducted prior to for the previous sixty-five years. Jesus Christ. So that's where we're at. And so, you know, I, I like to say that in a few short years, we're going to have synthetic individuals that are completely indistinguishable from us. <laughs> uh, we, we have, in my opinion, made, uh, made creatures, you know, from genetic material that we've made up. Um, if you want to see one such creature, supposedly one such creature, um, www.votrig.com. Uh, what are we looking at? www.votrig.com forward slash creature dot mp4. The reason why I'm using this is because I know that this person has MP4. Their, this, this person has all of their uh, uh, all of their site run out of Iceland, right next to the, the, the volcano that's blowing up. Um, well, that's a CGI interpretation of whatever this is. It looks real, though. So you see how the bulbous... I hope you guys have looked it up. See how it's bulbous Like it's sort of like going in and out all the side rocks. It looks like it looks like it's from the movie It. I mean, it's it's frightening. Yes. It's, well, you, you would say, well, there's no creatures on this planet that uses hydraulics in order to move its legs or move part of its body. But uh, no, spiders. Spiders, that's how they can jump so far. They use hydraulic pressure in their legs to extend their legs. These muscles contract, but uh, to extend these hydraulic pressure. So, and that's also biowarfare, building stuff like that. And so, and what is this supposed to be on a microscopic scale? I mean, no, no, this is this is this is a creature supposedly what, what you're looking at right there that supposedly they've been made out of raw genetics and they they made that and that's how that thing moves. What's the size of this thing that we're looking at? I have no, I have, I have no idea. It didn't say anything about it. God, but right, but we have we have the ability to we've had the ability through CRISPR to make and edit genes for. 15, 20 years. So if you can imagine it, it's possible. If you think that there's human chimeras, probably, definitely in my opinion, but probably. Um, and we're now at a point where biowarfare is the most dangerous thing to the entire world. Maybe the exception of still uh, meteorite or nuclear holocaust. Um, this is man-made. Oh, no, nuclear holocausts are man-made as well. If, oh. if, and if you have the ability to do something and the will to do something, human beings do something. So to think that there's a Captain Trips out there, or isn't a Captain Trips out there that I can wipe out humanity laying on somebody's desk or in somebody's freezer would just be ignorant. Um, Biowarfare is here to stay. Things on a long enough timeline will get out. We have tried worldwide to stop it multiple times. And we, the Chinese, the Russians, and everybody else have just flaunted it and said, mm -hmm. ha ha, we're not going to do it. And on a long enough timeline, something's going to get out. It's going to negatively affect the world. 
it's going to be bad. March well, 19th let's hope not. Year. March 19th <laughs> last year. So, so there you go. That is that is biowarfare in a nutshell. And I'm sorry I don't have more information from you from Bush on, but he shut that information down. And and with the technologies that came through in in the two thousands. And we had fruit flies in the late in the early two thousands completely genetically mapped. Human beings completely genetically mapped. We have tissue samples from aborted fetuses from the 50s that are still alive. Maybe maybe 80 now, 70 now. Um, so it's it, it's as bad as you can imagine. And that is from me and my research from most of my life, paying attention to this sort of stuff because I like the macabre and it terrifies me and hopefully now terrifies you. That's pretty much what I got to say in the subject, John. Um, <laughs> well, I'll have to say, say, I'll have to say that there's a lot to actually appreciate with life, and there's a lot of positivity out there. And uh, I'll make sure I muster up an episode. Our next episode will be about something that's not so morbid, but we do have a book review for the audience, and Hollis is going to go ahead and take us away with that as well. Um. Yes, I do have a book review, and I want to go ahead and, and sort of book review um, not not just one book, but several books, because I own several books. Um, and this guy named John Gunther, and John Gunther is a famous author from way back, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, sometimes even, even way beyond that, 80 years ago. And he wrote several books um, called Inside. And so you have Inside Africa. You have Inside Europe. You have his last book, Inside uh, New Zealand and Australia. Inside America. And he basically tells these little vignettes and little stories of what went on and what was happening in that country in that time, in that time frame. And he has these like really, really strange beautiful stories in each one um example and i'll leave you guys with this one how did how did we get outhouses in the united states why is it in the old uh looney tunes you see outhouses in every single looney tunes what is that about well good old herman rockefeller went ahead and was trying to get people in, in southern uh north carolina and the poor backwoods of appalachia to buy more gas for their stoves, but they couldn't because they were poor trash white farmers and you know, they're farmers that weren't white and they were, they were barefoot, literally barefoot because they couldn't afford shoes. And of course, leather does not work out here in North Carolina. It just melts. And so he went and sent doctors to go ahead and figure out why. Now, one of those doctors, um, his parents were killed in the flood and he went and he figured out what was happening. And what was happening, this is paid for by Herman Rockefeller, was that these gentlemen were taking a poop on trees because they didn't have an outhouse. And those that had picked a new tree every day for five days or more weren't getting hookworms. Those who were doing five days or less were getting hookworms. And hookworms are worms that poop, you poop them out, and then they get in the soil and they come up through holes that they make through your feet 
go through your blood system, go back into your stomach, and rinse through the cycle, repeat. Um, Nasty the, little critters. Yep. So the hookworms, um, and it gives you really itchy, itchy, itchy butt. The hookworms um, can travel <laughs> for five days, and they can travel up, down, left, right, doesn't matter, as long as they're against the surface, and they travel one foot a day in the larvae. So, Herman Rockefeller, in order to go ahead and make people to go ahead and and not have hookworms, he popularized outhouses, and he put outhouses in magazines, and he had an outhouse company, and he asked Hollywood to put outhouses in their cartoons. So it was a full court press in the eighteen like manamanas, early nineteen hundreds, um, to go ahead and get people to get outhouses, so they wouldn't get hookworms, so he could sell them more gas. That's why we have outhouses and sanitation in much of the United States today. How about it, that? It came. It, it started from like it's really nice to have a you know place to go poop in your privacy outside of your home. To yeah. no, really, you need this, and that's why we have better sanitation in the United States. That's the sort of stories that are inside Africa, inside America, inside all of this. A guy named John Gunther. Every single book is a tad dry but um fascinating fascinating story it's like reading herodotus's histories just in a modern day it's and you can find stuff. us on amazon yeah. and on uh <clears throat> audible and anywhere else books are sold we do not have an affiliate link yet i'm working on that uh i, I i'd like to get a few more episodes out and and tweak our production value before we start accepting donations. I'm still working on creating a website for our podcast, and we would also like to continue to produce these a little more regularly, but for now, folks, you're stuck with about twice a month. Uh, maybe eventually we'll do three times a month, and then you'll get us once a week. You can listen to us on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcast now. We were just released on Apple Podcasts. So if you have iTunes, you can hear us. Run Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Republic, and of course, Spotify. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank the listeners, our loyal listeners. We are listened to in uh, quite a few countries. Uh, surprisingly enough, we're listened to in the Czech Republic, United Kingdom, Canada, Germany. Indonesia, Australia, Ireland, Puerto Rico, Singapore is the one, and France, I think, have been listening for a while. Uh, my my mom listens now, too, by the way. <laughs> Hi, Mom. How are you? Hi, Mom. <laughs> so, uh, we're grateful for you. Uh, it's it's an overwhelming privilege to have a friend such as Hollis to join me on this endeavor. And I look forward to spending a few, few days with him on the 9th of April. We'll, we'll put something together special for you guys, maybe out from uh, the woods, the mountains, with our phones. Who knows? But again, this was an incredibly fascinating journey. You took us through all this. Uh, again, our next one will be something lighthearted. And yes, uh, <laughs> I love you, Hollis. Do you have any last words? Uh, good luck, have fun, and don't die, guys. Have a good one.